All right. How is everybody? Everybody feeling all right? Come on. Uh, if you have um, your Bible in any way, and when I say any way, maybe you have it in pages. If you have it on a device, I'm going to trust you. All right, to not be scrolling other places. Uh, but let's open up to Matthew chapter 5 together. Uh, Matthew chapter 5. There is just a, a real awesome sense of his presence. Um, really feel like just the, the weighty um, desire of the Lord to deliver, to abolish, um, I, I'll say it this way, the, the slavery and the tyranny of the lies of the old life, right? Jesus comes into the temple and he flips tables and he whips, not because he's angry with people, right? We understand James says the righteousness of God, man's anger can't produce that. So he's not in his feelings, right? He's not moving by fleshly emotion, meaning he's not moving from a sin nature. He's moving from a divine nature, right? Jesus is always subject to the life of the Spirit, to the rule of God. Every action, every thought is being fueled by a divine life. It's being sourced by a reality of the Spirit. Um, it's important, right? Hebrews 4 tells us he's tempted in every way, yet is without sin. Um, it's actually an outrageous thought to consider because we think of temptation in a variety of, let's say, like uh, worldly ways, um, you know, things that would be out external, that would be outright. Um, but there is a work of the flesh always longing to bring us captive to a sinful life. Um, he lives a resurrected reality before he raises from the dead because he lives above the captivity of the flesh, the prison of the self-life. He is the God-man, but he is filled with God's spirit, and it pleases God, Colossians 1, for the fullness of who he is to be in Christ. And so he lives not beyond the terms uh, because that would not make it fair. Um, he would be God, but he would flex deity in humanity, which would make him separate. But we know from Philippians 2 that he wouldn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbles himself. And he humbles himself as God to become a man. And if that's not mind-boggling enough, as a man, he humbles himself again to become a servant as a man. And if that's not low enough or humble enough, then even as a servant, he humbles himself again unto a lower place, which would be to actually lay his life down. The one who is the way, the truth, and the life chooses to experience death so that he can conquer death. Uh, just, I mean, completely extraordinary and mind-boggling. Um, but we understand, tempted in every way, yet without sin. So he comes in and he turns over tables and he whips people. Not because he's angry, because again, he's tempted in every way, but he never sinned. You see, so this means he never did anything from a place of fleshly anger. 
He never did anything from a place of insecurity. He never did anything from a place of being motivated by fear or corruption or all of the manipulation that this fleshly life comes with it, all of the attachments and its bondages. He was tempted in every way to be moved by those things, but at all times sourced by divine life. He does what his father desires for him to do. And he says what he hears and he does what he sees because he delights to do his father's will. And even during worship, I just had a real sense of like that Zephaniah 3 passage, for the Lord your God is mighty to save and he is in your midst. And he sings songs over you, songs of deliverance. Songs of deliverance, songs of hope. And again, I just, I just have this weighty sense, man, of like the desire of the Lord, like the longing. Because again, Jesus turns over tables and he cracks whips, not because he's angry with people, but he's angry at the bondage that people fall into that animates them. The lies that they believe that once coming into agreement with begins to animate them. It moves them. It fuels their thoughts and their behaviors. And he's angry at the Spirit's work, the rulers of the age that move people to be something other than what he created them to be. And his anger is with the rulers of the age, right? Because we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. It would do us really well to get off of names and faces. <laughs> right? Like it would do us really well to get off of names and faces. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but it's what's the infusion that creates the animation. It's what people open themselves up to by way of inspiration that begins to actually move them. And so they're living out an agenda or a desire that is not their own, but it's been given to them. Um, and I really have this sense from the Lord, uh, and we're going to jump into that from Matthew chapter 5. Man, that like just, just the love of God, again, coming crashing into our hearts in power, in reality, to actually set free, to deliver, so that we can live in the power and the quality of life that God desires for us. Because there is a power and a quality of life that is the inheritance for those of us that have come to believe, those of us that are born again. Right? Matthew chapter 5 would say it this way. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be filled. That's the promise. When the hunger and the thirst is in accordance with what God desires, he will never turn anyone away empty. He will never turn them away empty-handed. He will never run them off. But his promise is to be faithful to feed the hungry. Right? And if there's any ounce of hunger, any ounce of thirst, if there's any desire that we have in our hearts tonight, I pray that even right now, by the wind of the Spirit, that it would just blow across whatever hunger it is that we may feel like we came in with, and that God would just intensify where we feel like we may be lacking. Right? It's okay. Like if we came in and we're hungry, man, I want to be more hungry than I've ever known. I want it to be something so wild, so just absurd, something that I can't manage by my own fleshly means, something that I just can't tweak the dials on my own system of religiosity to Jesus. No, blow the whole machine up. 
right? No more dials, no more self-management, no more fleshly conniving and manipulation. Blow the whole machine up. I want outrageous hunger. I want God to do something to touch me in an extraordinary way to where I don't even really know how necessarily to respond or the best way to go about it, but I just get up every day and I'm on fire and I'm going to do whatever God says and I'm going to love him in an outrageous way beyond the boundaries of other people's opinions and all of the critics and the haters and the spectators. Now, you can have all that because I'm not living for you. I'm living for him, right? And there's one man that is going to stand before me at the end of my life. And I'm sorry, it's not going to be you. It's not going to be you. We may all be there together, but you're not going to be the one that I'm looking for the opinion from. And there's going to be one voice, one set of eyes, one opinion that is going to matter, and it is going to be ultimate. And he's going to have fire in his eyes hair white like wool. How wild um, the vision during worship from Revelation 19. The one who comes riding on the white horse. The one who comes to establish salvation in an ultimate way. To bring judgment to all of the enemies of God's love and leadership. Let God arise and let his enemies be scattered. And the reality of that will be in the fullest measure of what God desires on that great day, which Revelation 19 also communicates as we know it to be the marriage supper of the Lamb. All of our lives are leaning in towards that great day of possession where Jesus will finally be able to possess his people the way that he longs for, the way that his heart is on fire for. May the Lamb that was slain, man, we say this, we pray this, we understand it in the terms of missions, Right, The Moravians, Zinzendorf, 24-7 prayer, 100 plus years, they would leave the coast of the country knowing that many of them would never see their families again. And they would erupt in this cry, this chant almost, if you would. They would say, he is worthy and worthy of our very lives. And may the lamb that was slain reap the reward of his sufferings. Well, tonight I want to challenge you to see your life in the context of the reward of his sufferings. Because the reward of his sufferings is this people that he longs to possess. The reward of his sufferings is the bride that he knows his father has promised him. And everything that the father has promised Jesus, Jesus is going to get. And everything that Jesus has prayed for Everything that Jesus is interceding for, everything that he knows, there's one man that can live with entitlement, and it's right to do so, and it's Jesus. He is entitled to what his father promised him. He deserves it. You see, we at times live with a sense of entitlement, but it's nothing more than expectation that's become corrupted. Where we feel like God owes me something. Because, man, I prayed this long, or I read this many chapters, or I gave that much. God owes us nothing. (laughs) Man, let your heart be set free. He owes you nothing. There's no wiggle room. There's no way to, like, massage your devotion to back him into a corner to get him to do something. He is who he is. He's satisfied with everything that he is. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means he's not changing. He's not changing by our devotional efforts. Well, maybe if, I, maybe if I just fast enough, I can get God to be what I don't think he is already. No, no, God's not changing. 
God is who he is, and he's very comfortable being who he is. Last night we said God is not insecure. Because if he was insecure, then he would try to make accommodations based off of your opinions or your demands. But he's not trying to do that. Right? That, that, is, that is the mountaintop of insecurity, which is the fear of man. Right? Because what you think about me or say about me bothers me more than it actually bothers you. And so I have to do everything that I can to try and fix things that I don't like you saying about me or thinking about me because at the end of the day, it moves me more than it moves you. And this is what insecurity does, right? Insecurity and the fear of man and all of this, it's self-pleasing more than it is man-pleasing. See, we think it's man-pleasing, but the only reason it's man-pleasing is because it's self-pleasing. Because I need to fix what you think about me so that I can think right about myself, thinking that everyone thinks the right thing about me. But God is not this way. He is completely okay with being himself. He is totally free. He's so free that he can be worshipped in the place of eternity nonstop. Think about this. Uh, God is the only person that can be worshipped 24-7 and still be himself. Right? Some of, man, we live in such a funny moment in history. So some of us can't get a few extra followers on social media. Right? And all of a sudden we start walking different. You see how many views my last video got? Bro, you don't know who I am. You can't talk to me that way anymore. Bro, like God's doing something in my, in my life. Right? We weren't made with the capacity to be worshipped because it changes us. We weren't made with the capacity to be the object of someone's ultimate sense of affection, to be adored, to be worshipped, to be attentive or focused 24-7. We can't. We weren't made with the capacity to handle that, but God was because he understands that not even in the place of being worshipped 24-7, he's not changing. But through the place of worship, he uses it in order to serve his desires in your life and in mine. Because if he's not the one that's being changed in the place of worship, then who is? And he offers the invitation by creating a reference point for something we've never seen, for something that is wildly, dynamically different than who we know ourselves to be. It's one of the beautiful realities of being able to see God. Because we're invited to behold so that we can be transformed into the image of what God has chosen to reveal of himself. So he shows us his son, who is wildly different than anything we've ever known on a fundamental level. Not just because Jesus is more beautiful than any other man that's ever lived. Right? Isaiah 53, 2 tells us there was nothing natural about him that was magnetic, meaning that we would desire him. Right? So it wasn't like Jesus had the best set of biceps and a six-pack, and that's why everybody longed to be around him. No, no, no. Isaiah actually says that there was nothing about his physical appearance that we would desire him, that you wouldn't have even been able to pick him out in a crowd if you were simply searching by what this fleshly life or the world system qualifies or appreciates people by. 
You see, because there is a system in this world that attempts to demand that we applaud what it applauds, that we appreciate what it appreciates, that we get into the current and that we swim upstream rather than against the stream with whatever the chaos or the swirl that the world is trying to create. And it says, you're going to like what we say you should like. And you're going to try to be what we say you should be. And you will live under the governor of our definition of success. But Jesus breaks the boundaries. Jesus breaks the boundaries because he is something radically and fundamentally different. And he creates a reference point for something other than he is holy. He is holy. And in Matthew 5, this is Jesus on the side of the mount opening up his heart. And he's opening up his life, right? Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Before you consider this to be like some religious to-dos, understand this in the context of the power and the quality of life and character that Jesus embodies by the spirit that is at work in him. It is a power and a quality of life that is only possible if the Spirit does something in you to transform you as you are beholding this man, Jesus, who is in every way possible different than who we are. He is in every way different than what we were born into as an inheritance. And it is why it is necessary for man to be born again, right? The Pharisee Nicodemus comes to Jesus in John 3, and he's trying to reason with him. He's like, bro, like, listen, man, we know you're from God. Like, nobody could do the things that you're doing, bro, if, like, the Lord hadn't sent you. And he begins to go in this, like, tit for tat and back and forth, and Jesus is like, unless a man is born again, you can't perceive the kingdom, and you can't enter into the kingdom. And Nicodemus is like, hold on, bro. Like, man, in my later days, like, surely that can't be the plan, is for a man to enter again into his mother's womb. <laughs> like, that can't be the plan. And Jesus is like, you're totally blind. You're blind and you're deaf. And you are one of the guides of Israel. And he's like, what's born of flesh is flesh. And what's born of spirit is spirit. And it's why it's necessary for you and I to be born again. Because in this born-again experience, we are radically and fundamentally reconfigured. We are radically and wildly transformed. It doesn't matter to me how it feels. It doesn't matter to me if it came with thrills and frills and you felt like you got hit with a lightning bolt. It doesn't matter to me if you fell on the ground, rolled up underneath the chairs. You could have had none of those things actually happen in the place of your feelings. And it's important that we not choose to make our feelings the governor of our life. Because there are going to be times where we don't feel things that God says is true, but our feelings are not supposed to become the substitute for what God says is supposed to be our theology. Because what God says is true, and at times our feelings are going to line up with the truth, and at other times our feelings are going to be bad leaders. And they are going to want to create a wandering in us from things we know to be true because of the way that we feel. And it's important 
that we see this born-again experience. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, if any man is in Christ, right? This is a familiar passage. If any man is in Christ, any man, old man, young man, rich man, poor man, known man, unknown man, any man is in Christ, that man is now a new creature, a new creation. He did not say that that man has now picked the best of the religious options on the list. Right? We're not Christian because we just don't want to be Buddhist. Right? You're not Christian because you just can't fully agree with Muslim or atheism or things of that nature. No, no, no. You're not Christian because you just chose it as some religious observance by some duty, some way that you could just give your life to a religious way of life and the activities thereof. You're not Christian because you attend meetings, pray before meals, give in offerings. No, no, no. You're Christian because you've actually seen the Christ. And this is important. You're not Christian because you attend meetings. You can be in church, but Paul didn't say if any man is in church that that man is a new creature. He said if any man is in Christ, and there's a difference. Now, it may be important, and these may be tools and ways and pathways and roadways, and God may use people and gatherings and things of that nature, but it's important that we not create a substitute for what is actually the ultimate issue. Because you can be in church and yet dodge the issue of a born-again experience to be in Christ. And you think that if you're in church that you've made it far enough and that you can just add religiosity to an old man and an old way of life thinking that that marker or that that choice is going to get the job done and it's not. Because man needs more than a little bit of makeup added to an old house. This is not the born-again experience. The born-again experience is not, hey, listen, we're going to paint that wall and just put a new plant over there in that corner. But the rest of the house is rotting. The rest of the house needs to be torn down. The rest of the house is, it's not what it should be, but I'm just going to try to make it work. No, no, this is not the born-again experience. This is not the reality of the power and the work of the gospel. This is not what Jesus laid his life down in order to purchase when Revelation 5 says, you have done what no other could do. You have purchased a people for God and you did it with your own blood. And you have made them what they could never make themselves. Listen to this. What they could never make themselves. You have transformed them and made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God. You have humbled yourself to become a man. And as a man, you've humbled yourself as a servant. And as a servant, you've humbled yourself unto death. And even in death, you've chose the most humiliating or chose the most humbling way to possibly die. And stretched out in the middle of the afternoon, mocked, criticized, and left for dead by people and powers. You did it all because you delight in this people that you did not want to live without in the place of eternity. The eternal purpose, which Ephesians 1 says was worked out in Christ on the cross, 
was that God longs to have a people in the place of eternity that he can joyfully and lavishly share himself with forever. The Trinitarian Fellowship, this divine community, so wildly in love in themselves and delighting in the experience of fellowship that they enjoy in themselves, say in themselves, this is so awesome. Let's make people we can share it with. It's so good to be what we are. And what we are, we want to share it with everybody that we can. And the Father's desire, this eternal purpose to have a people, to have a bride for his son to possess on that great presentation day, the marriage supper of the lamb, the lamb that was slain, Jesus thinks his bride is to die for and gives his life for her and is longing to possess her on that great day that all of our lives are leaning in towards. And it is the Father's joy to consider, I can't live without them. I can't live without them. And I know that sin has attempted to corrupt them. And I know that the enemy thinks he's thrown a monkey wrench into the whole system of sorts and thinks that he's derailed my purpose that I have for them because the enemy believes that if he can get man to sin, that God's going to have to walk away from the plan that he has for man because God is holy. And God can't allow sin to be a part of the equation in the consideration of eternity because like he tells Moses, when Moses cries out from the cleft of the rock, show me your glory. And he says, no man can see me and live because we're different. You see, we're we're not the same. And and you've, you've received an inheritance that now on a fundamental level has created a chasm because of how different we are. But you see, what the enemy never realized is that he thought he was creating problems for God's plan for man, never realizing that the way that God would create a solution to what the enemy thought was an ultimate issue was that God would become a man himself. (laughs) Realizing that no man would ever be able to satisfy the system. Maybe you've never thought about this. And I'm not saying that in some way. I, for a very long time, had never thought about it. God believes he is right and so believes in the systems that he's created that rather than compromising his systems in order to get what he wants, right? He's God. I mean, what are we talking about? Like, he can do whatever he wants. Rather than compromising his own statutes, compromising his own judgments, compromising his own character that establishes all of the systems that govern the universe and even the human experience itself. Rather than compromising, God chooses to yield and to surrender himself to his own judgments rather than compromising them. And even at the thought of it costing him his own life, He believes that his way is right, so much so that he would rather lay down his life 
in order to prove he's right than compromise and dodge the issue and make a workaround that would have to bring him to compromise his nature. Because it's the nature that makes him different. It's the nature at the name of Jesus. Every knee bows. Every demon trembles. Darkness begins to shake. It's not because Jesus is a better name than Stan. Right? Like, well, we just like the name Jesus better than Bob. So at the name of Jesus, yeah, that just sounds better than Jimmy or Jake. It's like, no, the name reflects the substance, the stature, the actual quality of nature. It's his DNA. His power source is his character. His power source is what's in his guts. It's his actual guts. It's what fills him. It's the substance of who he is as a person. And when we see Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we must understand it in the terms of a power and quality of life that cannot be faked, that cannot be bought, that cannot be manufactured on fleshly terms. It is a work of the Spirit. And before we see it and hear it as if Jesus is sitting down on the side of some mount and saying to everybody that day, hey, listen, here's your religious list. Here's the to-dos. Praise God. Let's see how well you do. Grit your teeth, grip your cross, and try to strive it out. Let me just tell you, weeping over enemies is a work of the Spirit. Weeping over enemies and interceding for executioners is a work of the Spirit. We know it's not just Jesus, it's Stephen also, right? Jesus in John 19, he's weeping over enemies as they are brutally executing him. Weeping over enemies and interceding for executioners. Let me just say, I'm not there always. <laughs> like, like there's more work that needs to be done in me so that the power and the quality of character that God desires by the transforming work of his spirit that is alive on the inside and jealously, constantly, joyfully conforming me to the image of Jesus, at times I realize, even as it was shared during worship, there's still a gap in some of the places and spaces of the conversations of my life. Right, Stephen, too, at the end of Acts 7, face glowing like an angel, that's the end of Acts 6, on trial, although he's not the one that's on trial, even though the religious system thinks that they're putting him on trial. Stephen is actually an indictment to a system that's never been able to make a man like the one that they see standing before him. <laughs> Stephen's putting a whole system on trial. Thousands of years and your systems have never been able to produce a man of power and quality of character that looks like the one that's standing before you. Face glowing like an angel, accusers, critics, enemies, adversaries, and soon-to-be assassins. And Stephen is not running, trying to fight another day. He's present. And tears are rolling down his face while the rocks are flying. 
And he's weeping over what's perceived to be enemies. And he's interceding for what's perceived to be executioners. And he says, don't hold this against them. Because they don't understand why they're doing what they're doing. Reminiscent of Jesus on the cross, while hanging and bleeding out, is weeping and interceding. And he's praying for those that are killing him. (laughs) I I got a hard enough time praying for people that talk about me, praying for people that like do things that I consider to be like wrong or like betraying me. You can always tell who you have an issue with by those you can't pray for. Um, yeah, that just, that just has to hit where it hits, like, all of us, like, myself included, I need help, help me, Jesus. But he's weeping over enemies and interceding over executioners, not because he's trying to perform well in ministry, not because he's just trying to observe some religious facade so that on his way out, at least everybody can think the right thing about him. Like, man, did you see him go? Like, man, he was even praying for those guys that were killing him. Like, whoo. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and there are other places which we're going to get to, but Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is an unveiling of a divine nature. It's the opening up of the window and God giving us access to gaze into the quality of life that is possible to those of us that are born again. Those of us that are born again, which Paul would say again in 2 Corinthians 5, those of us that are in Christ, we are now new creatures. Which means we're not just trying to decorate the old house, God has sent the wrecking ball to the old house. That's the reality. That's the Romans 6 reality. God has sent the wrecking ball to the old house. You don't even have, as the Passion Translation would say, you don't even have the privilege to vacation in the old house whenever you've determined that you want to do so. It is no longer a place of dwelling. It's no longer your address. It's no longer your primary or even, from time to time, place of dwelling or residence. You've moved out. It's been torn down. The old man has gone into the grave. And if we have been buried with him, then will God not also raise us with him by the power of the same spirit that was at work in him and has now been given to those that believe so that we are not waiting for our ultimate day of resurrection where our mortal bodies will be transformed forever and we will be glorified humans on the other side of death alive forever with Jesus, but we here and now can live a resurrection quality and power of life, meaning the forging of God's character on the inside of us that shines as we live life being conformed to the image of his son. And this is the promise. It is the inheritance to those of us born again that are now a spirit people. For if any man be in Christ, that man is now a new creature. He is a new creation. You are a wildly different version of human than all of the rest of the humans that are populating the earth right now. 
And though the outward man perish, the inward man is being renewed day by day by day. So though I might look the same according to the externals, please do not misunderstand what is happening on the inside. Because I am what I am, and what I am has now only been made possible by the grace of God. And that's Paul's understanding of his life in God. I understand very well what I used to be. Hear that. I am what I am, and what I am, I am by the grace of God. So in that, you are implying that what you are is not what you used to be. You see, that there's going to have to come a moment in all of our journeys individually where we finally choose to believe that I'm born again. Where you believe in your own born-again experience. Where you believe in the investment and the entrustment that God has given to you. The investment, oh yeah. There is no greater resource that God could have provided to you. He's given you himself. He's given you his own life. He's given you the Holy Spirit. And God is now not walking on the outside or alongside as in the days of Jesus. Praise God. But Jesus said, it's better for you that I go. I get it. Walking alongside is super cool. But let me tell you what's going to be even cooler than walking alongside. Standing alongside is amazing. But I'm going to send the Spirit and when I send the Spirit, it'll no longer be God alongside. It'll be God standing up on the inside. And God will be able to get into man instead of just walking next to him. Because God is not just a taskmaster of sorts as it was in the days of Pharaoh, enslaving us to now just a different way of religious living and thinking. But God has given us his own life. And it's God's life on the inside, this divine life that is conquering everything we used to know of self-life. Because if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed, and all things have become new. There is power for all things to become new. There is power for every bondage to be broken. There is power for every appetite to be conquered. There is power for every hunger and every thirst to be satisfied with righteousness, which is what, what God says is the right way to satisfy the appetites of our new nature. And there is power to completely abolish the tyranny and the slavery of old ways of living and thinking that keep us captive to realities that are just not true. There's power. There's power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. They applied the blood to their doorposts so that the spirit of death would pass over. Well, now, as the blood, through the wisdom of the cross, has been applied to our lives, as we have pledged our allegiance to Jesus as King, the spirit of death passes over, and old ways of works and living in ways of death and corruption have also been broken. 
And this is the promise. It's not too good to be true. And it's not for those guys. It's not for the church staff. It's not for those who identify with a five-fold calling. It's for every single person that comes to believe. It's for every single person that pledges their allegiance to Jesus as king. It's for every single person that by catching a glimpse of him, God grants the spirit to them. And in this born again experience, wildly transformed new version of humanity, this is the promise. And this is where it starts. <laughs> it's not just amazing it is amazing, but it's not just that day, it's the day. It's the beginning. It's day one, it's kicking the door open to a spirit life. Because Paul says in Galatians 5, if we live by the spirit, then we no longer have to gratify the lustful desires of our flesh. That when we actually choose to believe that we have been buried and raised, that in our bodies, our sense of being a slave to sin has been put to death. And now we are alive to God in fellowship with his son, all by the wonder and wonderful working power of the Spirit, that we are now no longer slaves to sin, but we are slaves to righteousness. And that everything that used to be an attachment, everything that used to be an appetite leading to dead works, God has actually put to death by divine life on the inside. Man, this is gospel 101. This is gospel 101. It's a new creation. It's a brand new people that God is making to look like his son Jesus. Not just with ministry externals as if we could assume that just trying to behave like him is going to get the job done. Because we understand in the context of Matthew 7, there's going to be a lot. Jesus says many on that day are going to say to me, man, we prophesied, casted out devils, raised the dead. Jesus say, you had a lot going on. You did, and it was amazing, but I never knew you. So it can't be activity alone. It can't be activity alone. And this is what we have to understand, that God is not only working on the things on the outside, but that the work of the reality of the gospel is something that has happened and is happening in the core of who we are. It's in our guts. It's on a default level. It's who we were naturally configured to be. And I'm not talking about things like personality and likes and like, oh, I like green and I like blue. But now God's transformed all that, so I can't like green and I can't like blue. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Right? You, you understand what I'm talking about. Right? Let, let's not make the conversation um, silly. This is ways where I'm talking about the inheritance of a self-life and the prison of the self-satisfaction, the prison of the self-indulgent way of life that all of us used to be a prisoner to. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2. There are only two categories. 
That's what Ephesians 2 communicates, two categories. He says, at one point, we were all dead in our trespasses. All. At one point, that was all of us. Dead in our trespasses. Living in sin, enjoying it. Right? I'll just, sinners sin. And when I was in the world, I didn't know anything different. And everything that I was doing was flowing from an old nature. And so it was natural. Because what flows from nature is natural. And I'm not talking about nature like birds and trees. I'm talking nature meaning the actual composition of a person. Meaning your substance, your guts, who you are on a default level. That's nature. It's why the name of Jesus is exalted above every other and demons tremble because they understand as he communicates in John 14, 30, though the ruler of the world has come, I'm not afraid because he has no thing in me. I'm different. There's nothing in me that belongs to him. There's nothing in me that thinks like him. There's nothing in me that dreams like him. There's nothing in me that behaves like him. There's nothing. There's nothing, right? First John 2 tells us the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is the captivity of the human experience. And it is the issue in the garden. The lust of the flesh, she saw it and longed for it. The lust of the eyes, when she looked upon it and saw that it was good for eating. And the pride of life. I can get what God says I can have without doing it his way. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is the captivity of the human experience. And Paul says at one time we all lived there. Dead in our trespasses, living in sin, satisfied by pursuing no one but ourselves. Self-satisfaction is an enslavement. And what a wretched prison cell to sit in with no one to pursue but ourselves. And if the work of the Spirit does of the umpteenth things that it does, one of the things that it absolutely does is it breaks the hold of my eyes only being able to see me to create a longing to pursue me, to create a desire to do whatever I can in order to satisfy me, where I'm at the center and every other thing and every other one orbits around all of my desires. And now all of life is being leveraged unto what I think is the way that my appetites want to be satisfied. And for those who are not born again, who don't have the spirit to those who are living dead in trespasses and sins, this is natural. It is normal. We know nothing else. There is no other reference point. Therefore, it is assumed to be the norm. And it's what creates culture where everyone is doing it. Everyone is satisfying themselves. Everyone is pursuing themselves. Everyone is doing whatever they want to do in order to make the I the center of their lives. And Paul says at one time, we all were in that category. All. He says being ruled by the powers of the air. Living under the agenda 
of becoming a prisoner through the influence of the powers of the air to a self-indulgent way of life. He says living in self-indulgence according to the lusts of the flesh and of the mind. What does that mean? Whatever I feel I want and whatever I think is best. (laughs) And at one point, we were all prisoners. Paul makes it super simple. The rulers of the air long to derail your connection to God by you casting off the idea of his love and leadership to do what? So that you can live according to a self-indulgence, meaning I'm at the center, I will satisfy my life the way that I want to, and what I feel I want, I should have, and what I think is best, I'm going to pursue. That's how I'm going to set my life up, according to me, my wants, my feels, my thoughts, my desires. Paul says at one point, we all lived there. He says, but God, who was rich in mercy and kindness and long-suffering and patience and grace. God did what no other could do in order to change the category of the human experience. When humanity was enslaved to that category, right? That's the reality of Romans 5. One man sinned, and therefore, as an inheritance, corruption came upon the human experience. And we now, with a sin inheritance, according to the first Adam, live as prisoners of self-indulgence, right? This is more than a good and bad issue. Right? Because we make excuses for people that are not born again. Well, bro, you get it, man. Like, listen, bro, like they're not actually like, they're not living in darkness. Like, I get it, bro. They're not like serving the devil and living, you know, under the rule of powers. Like, no, they're not like that. They don't, they're not born again, but they're a good person. Paul is saying there are two categories: dead in sin or alive to God. Those are the two categories. So the gospel is not an issue of good or bad. The gospel is an issue of dead or alive. And when we make exemptions, we lose the urgency of the hour by creating excuses for people that, well, they're good people. They're just not born again. (laughs) And, And it's not some judgment. It's not some guilt. It's reality. It's what's ultimate. It's what's actually true. These are the terms. And we're not trying to make accommodation for the world's conversation. The gospel has created God's conversation, and we are heralds of it in the earth. We are here to announce that Jesus is king, that there is a Passover lamb, that he was slain for the sins of the world, and that there is now a mass exodus that is possible for those who pledge their allegiance to God's Son as His choice of the ruler of the cosmos. Because He is the Passover Lamb, and He is our passer or our power to pass over. He is our power to pass over from death to life. He is 
our power to pass over from the corruption of the sin nature and self-life to this born-again experience and the wonderful reality and inheritance that is now ours to those of us that believe. And Paul says, but God, rich in mercy, did what no other could do. And what God has done has transformed the conversation for the human experience. We now have a choice. And those that choose to believe, for if anyone would call upon the name of the Lord, anyone, for those who call upon the name of the Lord, any who would so desire, any who would cry out, any who would call, any who would realize their desperate condition and the situation of their life and their brokenness and their depravity. We never graduate from dependency. It's why Matthew 5 starts with blessed or happy are those who are poor in spirit. And any who call, God is faithful to answer. And he says, now God has done what he only could do in order to create new terms for the human experience. And now those who are in Christ are new creatures. And these new creatures are wildly, radically transformed humans. Not just on the outside, but on the inside. Because on the inside, God has reconfigured the nature that is in a man, to where now you have a new nature, which means you're not just the old you with religious externals, but you are a new you, and that new you starts on the inside, and that new you is as deep as deep could possibly go. That new you is as real as real could possibly be. And it's one of the reasons that we actually need discipleship when we get born again. Because too many of us forfeit our born again experience because we try to satisfy new appetites with old ways of living. But this new nature comes with new hungers and new thirsts. This new nature is desiring to live in a way that is now going to be natural according to the work of the Spirit that is happening on the inside of you. And it's why being filled with the Spirit is problematic. Because now, as God has shared himself with you in the most intimate way possible, the most intimate way possible, for those who have given themselves to the Lord, the two have become one in spirit. There is a merger that has happened through the born-again experience where you could not compartmentalize what God has done on the inside of you if you tried. It's not like, well, it's only real in this part of my life, but, you know, I've still reserved this part of my life for me, and, you know, I want it to be real here, and I like it to be real here, and I want to give a little bit here, but I still want this for me. No, no, there is no compartmentalizing what God has done on the inside. It's all. It's union. It's a power of fellowship that God has established by raising you from the dead and giving you his own life. And now this new life comes with a new nature. 
And Matthew 5 says it comes with hungers and thirsts. Because God just hasn't shared himself with you so that you could enjoy God the way that you want to. God has shared himself with you so that you could be enjoyed by God, first and foremost, as he gives himself to you. Right? Again, this thing is not about what we can do for him or what we've given him. Well, I've left everything to follow you. No, 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 no. If you were to ever be able to see the reality of the cost, right? Those of us who try to think, well, God owes me something because I left a lot to be a Christian. (laughs) Well, I'm entitled now because you don't understand like the things I walked away from and stuff that I used to like and what I used to enjoy and the way that I used to live. I left a lot for this Jesus guy. No, 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 no. You see, the work in a born-again experience is just not doing away with me giving myself to sin. It's not just power so that I don't do it. It's power to conquer every desire that was ever alive in me that wanted to do something out of alignment of what God desires for me. This is where real power is manifested in the born-again experience. It is to crucify, it is to conquer, it is to abolish the desires where regardless of how well we suppress or hide or how we manage our old man while trying to live a new life, it is not just power to hide the things about the old man and the old life so that at the most inopportune times they don't rear their ugly head and ruin everything I got going on for me. No, no, this is not the power in a born-again experience. The power in a born-again experience is to transform the very appetites that are alive on the inside of a man where it's not just that he doesn't sin anymore, but it's I don't even have those desires anymore. I'm not trying to just fake it till I make it and pretend like I agree that that's not right. Well, yeah, bless God, brother, I, I agree I shouldn't do that. But on the inside, I'm itching. On the inside, I'm still like jonesing, man. Like, like I know that it's not right, but, but man, like, and, and here's the problem. When you don't put your anchor in Romans 6, you end up battling with Romans 7, and then you end up living in Romans 8.1, which means if you don't put your anchor in born-again experience, power by God's divine life that's at work in me, transforming me on a fundamental default level, reconfiguring every appetite that was associated with my old way of living and thinking. I am a new creature. I am not what I used to be. It's why I need discipleship so that I can actually learn in a consistent way, how this new nature and the appetites that are associated with it are supposed to be satisfied because I'm hungering and thirsting, but as a spirit person, God tells me I don't have to gratify or cave or buckle 
under the pressure of those fleshly demands anymore, but that I actually have life and power and a quality of life and power on the inside that rises above everything that wants to keep me a prisoner to a fleshly carnal worldly system and way of living and thinking and now I have to learn on a consistent way how to actually live this and if I don't put my anchor in Romans 6 dead to sin gone old house buried demolished reality is now that's done away with and I have been raised to new life by the power of the Spirit, and I am now a slave to God and righteousness. And I can serve his purposes. I can give myself to hunger and thirst after what God says is right because it's his spirit in me hungering and thirsting and it's his spirit at work in me that has given me the desires and the groans and the longings for a way of life that is consistent with the power that God has actually given to me and now the character issues they just flourish because I'm not trying to be more like Jesus I'm actually believing that he's done away with the whole system and the prison of the self-life and all of its appetites. And he's done something in me. And he's faithful to it. He's the author and the finisher. And he's the one who sustains it the whole way through. And it's all his desire and it's all his doing because it's all his power to perfect what he promised his son. And so he's not doing it necessarily because I deserve it. He's doing it because he promised his son something and his son is entitled to it, which means his son deserves it. And the way that I see my life is my life is now fit into the setting or the context of the promise that the father made to the son. And he's going to be faithful to bring me to the point of completion because he's going to reward his son with the people that he promised him. And I am a part of that people. I am a part of that wildly transformed new creation. The reason that elders and angels and creatures and saints are singing songs to the Lamb in Revelation 5, for you have done what no other could do. You took a hostile, insecure, broken, weak, self-satisfied creation, and you did it. You transformed them. You became one of them so that you could transform them all. You've done it. You've made them what they could never make themselves. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God. And you are worthy of glory and honor and power and dominion forever and ever and ever. Amen. They are singing songs to the Lamb because of his power at work 
in a broken experience of humanity to transform them in order for him to possess them to fulfill the promise that his father made to him. They are giving him glory because of his faithfulness to the work that is happening on the inside of you right now. This is insane. The work that is happening on the inside of you right now. Man, and I just felt that tonight, that we're going to close in a, in a time of prayer together. Man, I just felt tonight, as I opened with in the beginning, I shared my agenda in the beginning, that the Lord is in our midst, and that he's mighty to save, and he's singing songs of deliverance over us. And by the power of his own spirit, yes, hovering in the room, but also at work on the inside of us, Right? Acts 2 had both. God filled the room, but he also filled the people. That God is longing with a jealousy out of his own desires because he knows what he's after. He knows what he's promised his son. And at times, we buy into lies. Man, and we just, we deceive ourselves. We say things like, well, well I'm always going to be this way. Well, well, you don't understand. Like, this is a family thing for me. Like, my dad was this way, and I'm just like my Uncle Jimmy, and you don't understand. My grandpa was this way, and like my great-grandpa, and like, and, and it's just been a part of who we are. Right? Let, let, me, let me say it this way. The, the charge to the children of Israel coming out of the wilderness was you only have to remain the way that you were raised if you choose to do so. Right? That was the ultimate issue. I long to deliver you from the idea, the perspective, the agreement of constantly seeing yourself the way that you were raised. And because he could not deliver them in the place of their thinking or their perception, it says he had to move on from them, waiting for another generation to arise so that he could walk with them. A generation that would be raised a different way to see themselves a different way than the generation that came out of the slavery in Egypt. Because you can end up in a new place, surrounded with new folks, but unless, like Romans 12 says, we are transformed in our minds, new place, new people, old outcomes. But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that then you are able to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, right? And I just believe the Lord wants to do something in our hearts and in the room tonight, where if there are things in the place of our desires and our appetites that are still in proportion to the old man and an old way of living. Man, God is going to issue power unto deliverance tonight. Right? When we think deliverer, it's time to come out. Right? Where those appetites, not power to suppress them, power to transform them. Where my desires are wildly transformed. Where I know what he wants and I want what he wants. And there's not this wrestling match, which I get Paul talks about in Romans 7, which that's the reality. 
You don't sow into Romans 6 and put your anchor there. You end up living in the wrestling of Romans 7, and then you end up in Romans 8.1, where Paul says, for there is now no condemnation. Man, and the, the, the self-condemned life that we live, the self-guilt, the shame, the bondage of feeling like we don't measure up, like we're not meeting our standard, like we're not as good, we're not as spiritual, as religious as everyone else that we're comparing ourselves to and at times competing with and creating plumb lines and measuring rods and standards against our own life. Man, may the Lord completely destroy like shame and guilt and the bondage and the baggage of condemnation off of our lives tonight as we reinvest and put our anchors down in choosing our allegiance to the reality of the gospel, believing in my own heart and life that God has done something in me and it is real and what he has done in me has also done away with everything that I used to knew, which was the conversation of me. Because this is reality. Man, and I feel like the Lord just really wants to touch our hearts and our appetites. Where, like Matthew 5, 8, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they shall be filled. Man, may the Lord fill us and possess us afresh with his desires where we hunger for what God wants, where we thirst for what we know God is after, and where, if there are any rivals in the place of my appetites, man, may the Lord give us grace to completely conquer those, to bury them, to do away with them. And if there are any struggles, man, I'm telling you, if there are any struggles tonight, struggles with bondage, with addiction, with things of brokenness and a, and a, and a self fleshly way of living. Man, offer yourself again to the Lord. And rather than choosing to continue to agree with what is a lie, let's come out of agreement with what the lie is and let's choose to agree with the truth. Because this is true. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Man, and I know, man, I can feel it in my bones, man. Like the Lord is longing to just sweep through the room with deliverance. And I'm telling you, it's not like you have to do something or strive. It, it, there's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do. What I am suggesting to you is a work of the Spirit or it is not real at all. Because there's not enough fleshly like conniving. There's not enough emotionalism. It's not like, well, if I just get mad enough. No, there's not, you can get mad. Mad is not going to change the conversation. It's the work of the Spirit. It's God's delight to transform a creation that he promised to his son. This is where the beauty is, and this is where the power is. Is choosing to give myself to God again. Here I am, Lord. And there are things about me that I know are not necessarily what you say. Touch me again, Lord. And keep touching me until I look like your son. Keep touching me until I'm hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Lord, here I am again. 
any conversation in my life, any space, any place. Lord, I give it all to you again because it's got to be your spirit. There's no amount of working it up myself because though I might be able to behave like Jesus, his behavior is being fueled by a power of quality of character, and that's what I can't fake. You've got to touch me, and you've got to deliver me from this siding with the old man and me constantly trying to pick up an old way of living and thinking and then causing it to live and fueling it by my own strength. No, 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 I, that's not the life that I want. Here I am again, Lord, and I fall utterly hopeless and dependent on you to do it in me or else it's not going to get done. Here I am again, Lord, laying my life before you. No, no, not as some sinner and beggar, but as someone who knows that we've been changed, we've been transformed. Someone who knows that God has a delight. Someone who knows that out of love, God rises to scatter his enemies. <laughs>